0: children growing and welcome in on back to the first ever episode of the newly named blitz on the balcony part of the bruise on the balcony podcast family i am the host zach zook and if you have listened to what was formerly called the midweek show before nothing is changing except the name and the branding we had to uh call it something besides the midweek show, be a little bit more creative than that. So it's now Blitz on the Balcony. We'll have our own cool logo and everything soon. Um, if you're new to the show or you did not catch our Sunday Super Bowl preview, what we discussed on, on that, on that show was, was what we hope to accomplish in the offseason on Blitz on the Balcony. And I will be primarily hosting it. We'll have TJ Nick Big Web jump in, uh, whenever really they want, and we're going to be talking draft, free agency, we're going to be talking college football on this show. My goal for the audience is to make you the most informed and entertained uh, football listeners, football fans that, that you can be. I want you to be as informed as in, and as intelligent as possible. That's my goal, to bring that content to you, but we have a loaded show today. We are going to, of course, recap Super Bowl 54, the Chiefs. Are Super Bowl champions. It took them half a century to do it, but uh, they've done it. And for Andy Reid, it took him 21 years, and now he is finally a Super Bowl champion, especially here in this part of the country in St. Louis, not that far away from Kansas City. Really easy to be happy for a guy like Coach Reid. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Hall of Fame class, the class of 2020, and then the all-decade team because we are, of course, in a new decade here in 2020. So I'll give you my personal all Decade Team, uh, spoiler alert, Tom Brady's on it, so there's that. Um, but a loaded show, we have to thank our sponsors, because without them, this show wouldn't exist. Uh, first, our boys at STL Distillery on Freedon's Road in St. Charles. Head on out to STL Distillery, mention Brews on the Balcony, get a free tour in Tasting, be sure to try their Brew Vodka. We were passing the bottle of Brew Vodka around the Super Bowl party. Things got a little little out of hand at the Super Bowl party with the Brew Vodka, so get a, try the Brew Vodka. It's distilled from craft beer, or you can also try their Cardinal Sin Vodka. Try a Starka as well. Uh, STL Distillery with some fantastic spirits, a great gift, and, of course, mention BOTB. And get a free tour and tasting. We're also brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Uh, their third-generation trimmer it features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped Advanced skin safe technology manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past when i tell you this is a premium product i mean it's premium the battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave one of the coolest features is the led light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code BOTB at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com, and use the code BOTB. Thanks, and let's get into the show. Okay, Super Bowl 54, the Chiefs are the kings of the NFL. Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes, and the guys in red and yellow reign as champion. The last time we're going to get to break down a football game until late August, early September. So we're going to savor this one, and I want to cover it first from the angles of the winners, then from the angles of the Niners. But before we do any of that, I just want to go through the game kind of how we watched it, because... Of course, it was 10-10 at half, and the first real talking point of the game happened when Kyle Shanahan, in probably the most controversial decision of the Super Bowl, could have gotten the ball back and instead allowed 40 seconds to bleed off the clock before the Chiefs punted it away to them. Then you had the controversial offensive pass interference on George Kittle, but in my opinion, Kyle Shanahan's decision had already been made because... You let all that time run off the clock. You then finally get the ball back. You come back with a conservative running play. So to, to not get points, and I know that people were a little angry about the push-off. To me, in, in real time, I thought he pushed off. So uh, I wasn't as shocked or didn't have a problem with the call. If, I mean, if, if you've watched the NFL all season, they've called the offensive P.I., Pretty closely this year. That's one thing I think they've gotten right in the last five years of officiating. Is it used to be that you would get called for defensive pass interference for breathing on the guy, and they could practically mug you and get away with it. Whereas now, I feel like it's at least called fairly both ways. I think that the flags still fly far too often. Uh, in a perfect world, I would like for that not to be called offensive pass interference, but I'd also like for a lot of these defensive pass interferences to not be called either. So I didn't personally have a problem with that call. The main talking point at the end of that first half to me was the Kyle Shanahan decision to not take a timeout. And the flip side of it, and I'm sure this is what he was thinking is, well, I'm facing the most high-powered offense in the league. Uh they also have 3 timeouts. So you figure they're punting from about midfield. They're probably going to pin me deep here. I have a quarterback who and that's the biggest thing in this. He clearly doesn't trust Jimmy G in that spot he did not. So uh he's clearly thinking, "Well, I'm going to have to go a really long way. I'm going to have to pass the majority of the time. If I go three and out here, I'm pretty much putting points on the board for KC because they have all three of their timeouts. They have a really good offense. They'd be getting the ball in good field position. So from that, I understand that there's a risk in it, but you're going to have to pick up the first down anyways because they have the three timeouts. So irrega- irregardless of whether you or not you spend the timeout after you stop them on third, they still have the three TOs in their pocket that they can use if you don't pick up the first down. So I really don't understand why he didn't do that. And I, I, I've said it before on this podcast, And I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, aggression wins in the NFL, and aggression for the most part wins in this country, in a capitalistic society. I mean, look at the guy we have in office right now, Uh, not to get too political. But being aggressive in this game is so important, and I think a more pertinent example of that would be uh, the Philadelphia Eagles when they took out the Patriots to win the Super Bowl, what was that, two years ago now, with Nick Foles and Doug Peterson. They went for every fourth down opportunity, they ran trick plays, and they were aggressive because to beat a dynasty, to beat the Patriots, to win the Super Bowl, that's how you have to play the game. You cannot play scared, you can't play not to lose, and it doesn't take an analytics spreadsheet to figure that out, I don't think. I I, I just don't understand why you play it so coy on the biggest stage, and Kyle Shanahan has now done that twice. And it's bit him in the butt, huge, twice, on the biggest stage uh, in the world. So uh, it, it it it's unfortunate because now I feel like he's going to be labeled unfairly. But I but I also like I couldn't disagree with the decision more. You have to if Jimmy throws a pick, then then fine. That's that's on Jimmy. You have to trust your guys are going to get the job done, and you have to try to at least get a couple of first downs to, to run out the clock, if not try and get some points. You're talking about a coach that when he was the offensive coordinator of the Falcons was up 28-3 to in the fourth quarter and lost. So to to then go into the half and say, you know what, 10 10s fine. I'm fine with a tie at half. Dude, you were up 28-3 to and it wasn't enough. Why do you have this mindset like you're fine at 10-10? I don't understand that, and it, I think it ended up being the difference in the game. I, it's it's tough to boil it down to any one decision, but and the 49ers had their chances late. and It's just, I, I will never second-guess a decision if I don't disagree with it when the decision's made. I, try, I think it's unfair to go hindsight, because hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's It's easy to say now after the fact oh, well, you should you should have tried to put more points up on the board because it looks like obviously you needed them. I mean, if they would have won the game, I still would have thought the decision was stupid. So if in real time I can disagree with you and disagree with the decision, that's when I'll kind of uh, criticize you for it. And I think that this qualified with Shanahan. But uh, then in the second half, the story to me was... Uh, Patrick Mahomes had, was looking the worst I think I've seen him look in his career. And I'm not trying to be a prisoner of the moment, but for the first three and a half quarters of that football game, Patrick Mahomes was pedestrian and it, at certain points was just playing bad. He had the just interception and a total frustration. where he, I mean, he threw it right to Fred Warner. It was a terrible pass. It was uh, passes that I see below average quarterbacks make. Like guys that become backups, you know, and you just you don't see that very much from Patrick Mahomes, and it kind of made you go whoa. It felt like the lights were a little too bright for 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 the beginning stages of that game, and in the beginning, I don't really think it was Patty's fault because that offensive line was getting whipped up front. The right guard, Duvernay Tardif was just getting his ass kicked by Eric Armstead. And you had Nick Bosa coming off the edge. They couldn't block a soul. But in the second half, they were able to stabilize a little bit. Patty was able to get going. And here's one thing I'll say for Patrick Mahomes is, I don't think that in this day and age of football, with the millennial football player, that toughness is a given. I think back in the 80s and 90s, toughness in the NFL was a given. Every player had it. Nowadays, I think it's a legitimate trait. Because I don't think that everybody's tough. I I I don't even think three-quarters of the league is tough. But one thing I'll say for Patrick Mahomes is he's tough. He's a tough kid. He he throws the pick, doesn't bat an eyelash. Comes right back out. It's all about the next play. And he said that in the interviews. Next play, next play, next play. And he credited playing in the Big 12 for that mentality. Because that's how you had to play in the Big 12. You throw a pick, get right back out there. Because it's going to be a shootout and it's going to come down in the end. And so he learned that in college, and it's helped build him into the quarterback he is today, and he was taking shots. I mean, he got rocked by Ward in, in, in the first quarter of that game when he fumbled the ball, and then they ended up having to try and convert the third and one, what was it? Because he was across the line to gain, then just got absolutely clobbered, and the ball ends up flying a yard behind the first down uh, and before it rolls out of bounds. So he was taking shots in that game, he wasn't getting much protection, he was certainly getting frustrated, had the two interceptions in the game, but he persevered in his toughness and ability to stand in there in the face of immense pressure on the world's biggest stage with 100 plus million people watching that game was so remarkable to me and I think it truly cements him as the best quarterback unquestionably in football right now. Um, If I had to rank it, I think I'd go Patrick Mahomes, one, probably Russell Wilson, two, then a combination of maybe probably Drew Brees, three, and then you got some more young guys because I certainly wouldn't put Rodgers and Brady above any of the three I mentioned Like as it stands right now. Brees certainly had a better season this past year than did Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. So I, I think Patrick Mahomes is truly going to be one of the greats in this league, and the question is... Just how high will he ascend? Because assuming he can stay healthy and he has the ability to—I mean, you might as well. I said this about Quentin Nelson, like after after his rookie year. Like as long as he can stay healthy and stay out of trouble, you might as well hang the gold jacket on him right now. And I—I I know that seems crazy because he just completed his third year in the league, his second year starting, won the MVP though, his second year in the league, and is now a Super Bowl champion. So. Obviously a long way to go, obviously a young career, but for Patty and then for Coach Reed, those are my two biggest takeaways on this on this Chiefs Super Bowl. Uh, for Andy Reed, just so happy for him as a coach and, and as a guy, because you talk about a guy named Andy Reed, and I, I think I tweeted this on Monday, had waited 21 years to become a world champion. Got so close with the Eagles, completely turned around that franchise. When he was hired with the Chiefs, they had the number one overall pick. They weren't picking in the middle of the draft. They weren't a wild card team. They were the worst team in professional football. And Andy Reid was able to turn that around. They drafted Fisher, the lineman, and they made the playoffs six out of seven years since. And now it feels like, how is anybody else going to win the division with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid at at, at the at the forefront of it? Because are the are the Raiders, are the Broncos, or the Chargers going to be able to dethrone that combo, which looks like it's not going away anytime soon? I don't think so. So the sky is the limit for those guys and just the ability to persevere by Andy Reid is so impressive to me. And I think it really teaches us a life lesson because he grinded for two decades plus chasing that tangible goal of being a Super Bowl champion and each and every year, he came up short. For one reason or another, to his fault or to not his fault, he came up short. And I think it really teaches us that if you just keep swinging, if you just keep working, if you don't don't feel sorry for yourself but keep working and you'll eventually get there. I think that that is the manifestation of Andy Reid and what the Super Bowl kind of means to me personally. Uh, in the tweet I said on Monday too, it's, it's like Lamar Jackson said. He wore the t-shirt at the post game uh, one of, in one of his interviews. Nobody cares. Work harder. That's what Andy Reid did. Each of the last 21 years, I've been on this earth for 25 years, all but four years I've been alive, Andy Reid has been grinding as as a coach to win a Super Bowl, and he finally did it. In the year 2020 of our Lord, Andy Reid is a Super Bowl champion and will be forever. You cannot tell the story of the NFL without mentioning Andy Reid and now Patrick Mahomes. Okay, as much fun as it is to blow Andy Reid and the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes and how great they are, I am done doing that for this show, at least for. So I want to talk Niners and kind of where they go from here because, as is to be expected, there's been some overreaction uh, fr- from the game. So I think that there's a lot of Kyle Choked going around and let's face it he he has so he was the offensive coordinator of the Atlanta Falcons 28 to 3 uh comeback by the patriots that was a couple of seasons ago i think 3 now um and i think they were like a 97% win probability this 20 to 10 comeback that the Chiefs have now had over the San Francisco 49ers when Kyle is now the head coach was the second highest win probability in Super Bowl history for, for Kyle's team. So, so he certainly has uh, not been able to close out a couple games. I think the criticism uh, is fair, but to say he's a choke artist, I think is a little strong. I feel like all of a sudden he's getting branded the same way really Andy Reid was branded for such a long time. It's really interesting how as Andy Reid has won and gotten that monkey off its back, it seemingly has jumped right onto the back of Kyle Shanahan now as the guy that can't get it done in big games and he always chokes. And that's so ridiculous to me because... He's still one of the bright young minds in football, and in just his third season as the head coach of an NFL franchise, had the best roster and the best team from really start to finish until they ran into the Chiefs, and even though the Chiefs beat them, they have the better quarterback, and that's, I think, the main reason why we saw them come out on top, but from top to bottom, the 53-man roster of the 49ers, I think Even the Chiefs would tell you and their fans that it's better than the Chiefs because we take a look at some of the holes on their defense and we talked ad nauseum about the differences in the two rosters. But I think although it's fair to criticize Shanahan, you're jumping the shark a little bit if you are boiling down his coaching career to being a choke artist that can't win the big game. Well, I'd say the NFC Championship game is a pretty big game, and he boat raced the Packers. I'd say his first playoff game as a head coach is a pretty big game. Absolutely destroyed the Vikings. They went through the toughest schedule stretch in NFL history, where they played the Ravens, they played the Packers, I think they played the Seahawks, and they were outstanding. So... To boil Kyle Shanahan's success or lack thereof down to this Super Bowl victory is just ridiculous. And I know that Twitter isn't real life and social media isn't real life. And so most 49er fans don't feel that way. But it's it, the frustration was palpable after the 49ers were defeated by the Chiefs in the Super Bowl in the manner in which they were defeated. And I, I, I think I do, I do get it And the decision to be so uber conservative at the end of the first half it is is mind-boggling, and it only makes the frustration that then they end up giving up the comeback worse. But if you don't think that that Kyle Shanahan is going to win a ring as long as he just stays entrenched in San Francisco, then you're crazy. Because he and Sean McVay are the two brightest young head coaches we have in this league, and I'm not even counting. I mean, they're above Matt LaFleur, who I think turned out and proved that he's a pretty good head coach with the roster he took to 13-3 and three this year. So I think Kyle Shanahan, I mean, if, you, if I legitimately asked you for the next five years who you wanted as your head coach between McVay and Shanahan a year ago, you would have said McVay and you wouldn't have batted an eye. Now, I, I got to tell you, I really might take Kyle to have more success in the next five years than Sean McVay. Because of the, the success he's had this year, the way he's done it, they have such a sustainable team right now. He's just really impressed me. And it, I think the biggest thing about Kyle that I, I think is one of his biggest assets is his ability to remain steadfast. When they had those tough years just losing and Jimmy got hurt and they were like 1-10 in 10 at one point, I want to say. The press conferences were virtually the same as when they were winning and they went 13 and 3 and won the NFC. He's a very even keel coach and I think that's a very important trait to have in the leader of the franchise. You don't want to get too high and you don't want to get too low. And franchises that do that oftentimes struggle and aren't as consistent. Whereas I think Kyle Shanahan, because he's been around the game for so long, because he has been around his dad, Mike Shanahan, for his whole life and taken everything he's known from Mike, including that zone running scheme, he is going to have a very consistent football team. And I know it sounds like everybody, I feel like every year of every championship and every league, they always say, oh, well, they'll be back. They'll be back. And a lot of times they never do make it back. Look at the Rams this year. Oh, they'll be back. They didn't make the playoffs this year. The the, the Super Bowl champion Patriots lost one and done at home to the Titans on Wild Card weekend. You don't know if you're going to be back. But Kyle Shanahan, even if he's not back next year, has as good a chance over the next five years to win a Super Bowl as anybody in the league. And I think that if you put the odds right now, he would probably be the favorite. Uh, to to win one in the next five years, maybe Andy and Mahomes are probably still ahead of them because, I mean, realistically, what's what's changing over there? They could win multiple Super Bowls and become the Patriots of the 2020 decade in a in a flash if we're not careful here. And that's and maybe that's an outrageous take too. But I mean, you think about Mahomes and what he's accomplished so far in his very young career and all the time he's going to have left. They, he's going to be eligible in about, I think, 30 days for an extension, and he's going to get broken the fuck off. Just wait. I cannot wait to see what that number is. But getting back to Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers, I, I think it's just uh, it's a patience thing, and the 49ers fans have been pretty patient. I mean, they were an absolute dumpster fire their first two seasons, but mentally and with the franchise they weren't a dumpster fire on the field the product was terrible and they're trying out cj bethard and they're losing by a million but john lynch and kyle shanahan had their plan they stuck to it and they were rewarded with an nfc championship an nfc championship a super bowl berth and a young roster with some cap flexibility to where they can do a lot of different things and i i think if you're gonna point the finger at anyone you pointed at Jimmy Garoppolo, but even some of the takes on him have been kind of kind of outlandish. Jimmy Garoppolo, I don't think, is in a perfect system for him. Uh, if, if Bill Belichick had not called Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch and given them Jimmy G for the second-round pick, they would have signed Kirk Cousins in the offseason. He would have been a 49er. Kyle worked with him in Washington. Kyle loves those kind of quarterbacks because the robot quarterback is the type of quarterback that thrives in his offense. If you think about the play style, Matt Ryan's a much better quarterback than Kirk Cousins, but in terms of the play style, they're very similar, and they like things to be defined. And that's why Matt Ryan won an MVP in his offense. And so the styles clash a little bit with Jimmy G, who has much more of an Aaron Rodgers mentality or a Patrick Mahomes playmaking element than a Matt Ryan or a Kirk Cousins sit there robotic, Go through my progressions, throw the ball, dump it off to the backs, and hand the football off, ultimately, is what Kyle wants to do. So I've seen people saying that they should start Nick Mullins, that they should get rid of Jimmy Garoppolo, and while it's a fun thought experiment, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, Jimmy didn't play his best game, but I think it's also very hard to find a rhythm in the offense when you're running it as much as Kyle wants to do. That's why these robotic quarterbacks are kind of perfect. You don't want a playmaker that needs the ball in his hands to pass 30 times to feel to feel comfortable uh, in, in the offense because Kyle's not going to do that. That's not the way he operates. What did he throw? Eight passes against the Green Bay Packers, and he had limited chances in this game. It's not the way I think Jimmy is most comfortable playing, and I think that that's something that Kyle's going to have to learn and grow with as he, he proceeds in his career. Now, what's really, really interesting is that despite the extension, they can kind of get out from under the Garoppolo contract for little to nothing, penalty-wise and dead cap hit-wise. If they want to move on from him, they, in theory, could cut him and do that, do just that. But why would you do that? Who are you bringing in and is it really all Jimmy's fault? Because I think it really is. Jimmy didn't play very well in the Super Bowl. His stat line looked okay at times, but he didn't play very well. And that's that's fine, I think. But to say that he didn't play well all season is just moronic. And to say that he didn't carry the offense at times is equally moronic. So I think that while the criticism for both parties, Jimmy Garoppolo and Kyle Shanahan, to the two that have taken the brunt of the 49ers fans' anguish in the week here following after the Super Bowl defeat is warranted. I don't think that it's warranted to the point of of suggesting change or suggesting and, and putting these uh, these false narratives out there like Kyle Shanahan can't win a big game, Jimmy Garoppolo is not a good quarterback, you gotta move off him, you can't win with Jimmy G. Like that's that's outlandish because you can win with Jimmy G. You're up 20-10 to 10 in the fourth quarter. Uh, you just didn't hold on. You choked it away. You did. Now, well, how you come back from that is how you'll be remembered. And Andy Reid, I think, is a testament to that. And uh, the 49ers have a really exciting offseason ahead of them. Where they have some flexibility, some money things they can do. And if they do decide to maybe ponder moving off of Jimmy G, boy, would that be a story in the NFL. I almost kind of hope it happens just because... That would be so crazy, and I kind of root for chaos just as a, a media person now, and I think that they should keep Jimmy G, so as a Packers fan, I kind of hope that they screw up and ship him off for somebody else like a bunch of meathead idiots, but we'll, but we'll see. The 49ers are the best young roster in football. Uh, that That division is so tough, so... I mean, who knows if they'll be able to get back to this point uh, anytime soon with the Rams and McVay lurking, and you know uh, the Seahawks and Pete Carroll are going to compete every year, and then you have the Cardinals up and coming with Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury, but uh, they have a great young team, they're the kings of that division, and it will be their conference to lose heading into 2020. I want to acknowledge the Pro Football Hall of Fame guys that got in this year and talk about some of the guys that are going to have to wait now at least another year as they try to earn their induction to the Hall of Fame, and I know that this is always kind of a touchy, touchy topic for a lot of people, and it's guys' legacy at stake. They had the uh, video of the Dallas Cowboys player, whose name escapes me now. I mean, just they had the video of him finding out he didn't get in uh, and how disappointed he was. And it's it means so much to all of these players. And I understand that it is it is reserved for the elite of the elite. It's not the Hall of Very Good. It's the Hall of Fame. So, I, And I think that it should stay that way. It should be hard to make the Hall of Fame. But you see these guys and how much they've put into the sport, how much blood, sweat and tears they've given their life to this thing. And this means so much to them and they're at a point in their life now where it's not like you can you miss the pro bowl or an all pro and you can go back the next year and use that as fuel to kind of change everybody's mind. Like you're done, like you're what you have tried to accomplish like it's set in stone. And you want to be remembered for what you feel like you earned and deserved. And so it's a a tough thing sometimes when some of these guys don't get in. But I want to talk more about, we'll we'll get to kind of the guys that were snubbed and who should get in uh, in the following years down the line, but let's talk about the uh, five inductees as players to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, they have a uh, different—it was a different year this year for the Hall of Fame because this was the 100th year of the NFL. They had guys that played in, in older eras that they kind of let in, and, I, and they called it like it's a, it's a centenarian program or something like that that they were doing to kind of honor those that played in a very different era and time period. They also elected in a few coaches, Jimmy Johnson and Bill Cower. Uh, both were f- found out about their induction on live television. That was pretty cool to watch. But the five players that were elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the Class of 2020 are as follows. Safety Troy Palamalu, running back Edren James, safety, Steve Atwater, guard, Steve Hutchinson, wide receiver, Isaac Bruce. And let me just go down the list here and talk about some of these guys and what I think that they meant to the game, what they meant to me as a fan, because I'm finally getting to the age where I watched some of these guys growing up. Troy Palomalu, especially, was so iconic with the Steel Curtain and their Super Bowl team uh, when they defeated the Arizona Cardinals. And Troy Palomalu... Had to be one of one of the ba- best safeties of the of the two thousands, and was so iconic in his, in his versatility in what he could do on the defensive side of the football. He was a guy that could uh, beat offensive linemen blitzing, as well as pick the ball off in coverage. He wasn't really the fastest guy in the world. I think he came out of USC, if I'm not mistaken. But his instincts and his understanding of opposing offenses, his study in the, during the week was clear and evident because of how good his instincts were. I mean, you really compare it to the style of play in the secondary to that of a Richard Sherman because he was that instinctful on the football field. And in addition to that, ha- he did have great ability. He wasn't the fastest guy but he was a big guy, and he could lay the lumber. He came up and supported in the run game. He could take away tight ends and backs. Uh, in, in coverage, he could he could blitz the quarterback. He could play safety over the top, and he could be down in the box as a linebacker. He really did do it all, and the Steelers asked him to do it all. So really kind of cool that he got to go in as the same year as his head coach, Bill Cowher. Uh, Edron James, the running back from the Colts, was kind of on on his way out around the time I started really following the game. But I do remember uh, those years with the Colts he had with Peyton Manning and what at the time was one of the most incredible offenses I had ever seen because I was only about 6 or 7 years old when the greatest show on turf was going in 99 and 2000. And then the years after that, of course, and they were in St. Louis. And I, being from Central Illinois, remember remember those that time period vividly, but I don't really remember, or I didn't watch on TV the Rams uh, like I did that Colts team in, in, through those Peyton Manning years. But I always remember Edgerrin James is kind of a guy that was just very dependable and uh, just just got the job done for them uh, when whatever they needed him to do. If if they needed him to run it just ten times that game. He could do it. If they needed to lean on him for 30 carries, he could do it. If they needed him to catch passes, he could do it. If they needed him to hold up and run or pass protection, he could do it. He was a very selfless player from what I remember. And a guy that uh, uh, reminds me more currently today of a Frank Gore type and just his selflessness to the game and, and what he provided the Indianapolis Colts because as good as Peyton Manning in the passing offense was, no matter how good you are at one thing, if you become one-dimensional, the defenses will be able to sniff that out and they'll be able to take it away. And Edger and James made sure that that was never the case for the Indianapolis Colts, and uh, I think that he was elected in, and rightfully so. Steve Atwater, safety for the Denver Broncos is in, and this is... This was a controversial decision. I don't really remember watching Steve Atwater that much. He was uh, coming up around the time I was born and he got in over a Packer's great and that is why there have been there's been kind of some controversy because the stats clearly point to Leroy Butler and we'll I'll we'll get to Leroy Butler in a second. But uh, Steve Atwater, I think, is certainly deserving of the Hall as well. You have Steve Hutchinson, the guard. He's a Michigan guy. Steve Hutchinson was, and I remember him most with the Vikings. For I don't remember off the top of my head how many years he played with the Vikings. I want to say he played for the Seahawks too. I could be wrong about that. In fact, he might go in as a Seahawk. Anyways, I digress. Steve Hutchinson, though, a great guy in the trenches. Again, played kind of before I really came up, but I I do remember hearing his name, and he was a Michigan legend. Uh, Michigan and Big Ten schools in general are one of the few kind of places where linemen get remembered. Like, I will never forget Taylor Lewan. I will never forget uh, Jake Long, the left tackle at Michigan, and I'll never forget guys like Steve Hutchinson. And be that's because the university won't let you. They love their offensive linemen, and the Big Ten as a conference loves their fatties on the offensive line, and Steve Hutchinson was one of the best. He was so tough, and on on the interior, they don't get as much credit as the tackles do because they're not guarding always the premier edge defenders. They're not, you know, that left tackle position for a while was the only one that got any credit because it protects the quarterback's blind side from guys like LT. Well, Steve Hutchinson was instrumental in the run game. And it's guys like that that, get, that should get just as much credit as running backs like Edger and James because of what they're able to do moving 300-pound-plus defensive linemen and linebackers out of the box to to get push up there to allow the offense to move forward. So uh, Steve Hutchinson, a great guy. And lastly, Isaac Bruce. Tory Holt was on the ballot as well. And uh, it, it, it's good to see Isaac Bruce get in, a guy that was certainly instrumental in the greatest show on turf through the Kurt Warner years. Uh, kind of disappointing, I guess, that, that Tory Holt couldn't make it in. I, I understand it. Um, but Isaac Bruce certainly deserving, and I think it's great for him to get in. Uh, just just you think about those teams, and especially in St. Louis, the St. Louis sports Football podcast is what we're based in this city, and although I didn't live here around the time that was going on, I know Isaac Bruce means a lot to a lot of different guys. TJ and Nick, I'm sure, could go on for days, and Big Web could go on about watching those, those teams back in the late 90s and the early 2000s uh, just throw it up and down the field. It was the most exhilarating thing in sports at the time and for it to happen in such a small market as St. Louis I mean it's this wasn't the New York Football Giants that were doing this this wasn't a very storied football program at the time that was that it was happening it was it was the LA Rams that had moved from from the Aaron, Eric Dickerson days out to St. Louis and had hadn't really had much success, and then all of a sudden, this Arena Football League quarterback comes along, Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt come along, and all of a sudden, this offense turns into the the upstart, uh, uh, you know, darlings of the NFL, and they were so good as a team, and, and it's really nice to see them get their recognition, because I think sometimes the small market teams get lost, and... Uh, I I do wonder, and it it kind of is scary at times to think, like, what if the Rams just weren't quite good enough to get over the hump and win that Super Bowl and lose to the Patriots in another? Because they won the NFC twice in in that time span. And had they not done that, I wonder if guys like Isaac Bruce would still get their due, even if they had the same numbers. And uh, it makes me wonder. It makes me have doubts about that. But I am happy that uh those guys are getting the, the same recognition as some of the other guys on this list that played for much more storied franchises historically like like Troy Polamalu with the Steelers uh like Steve Atwater with the Broncos so uh, really happy for all five guys that get, got in i think they're certainly deserving a couple of guys i think that got snubbed i think the biggest one is Leroy Butler but uh also Richard Seymour and it, it the frustration is is visible and I'm going to try and pull up some of Leroy Butler's stats and compare them to, uh, to well, mainly Steve Steve Atwater's because that's who got in over him. But uh, Richard Seymour just said, I respect the process, on to 2021. Like, it's it's really hard for these guys that, that don't get in. And I think that Seymour deserved to get in. Reggie Wayne, it was his first time on the ballot this year. He certainly deserves to be in the Hall. I, I know that Hall of Fame voting has this weird gatekeeping attitude about it and it's like it's it's worse in baseball when you talk about unanimous guy getting unanimously voted in are you a first ballot guy or are, do you get in on your third try like that matters to the voters and I don't think it should like that that's the political bullshit that I don't really like but uh, for better or for worse I I do think Richard Seymour belongs. I do think Reggie Wayne belongs and I do think Leroy Butler belongs. I'm going to read you off some stats in comparison to Steve Atwater. Leroy Butler, in 181 games played, had 38 interceptions, 13 forced fumbles. He had 20 and a half sacks as a safety. He had 474 solo tackles, 10 tackles for losses. He was a four time All Pro, four time Pro Bowler. He was on the 1990s All Decade team, and of course, won Super Bowl. Uh, won the Super Bowl in 1996 with Brett Favre over the New England Patriots. Steve Atwater won the 1997 Super Bowl, and in 167 games, here's Steve Atwater's stats. He had uh, 24 interceptions, six forced fumbles, just five sacks, 334 solo tackles, but was an eight-time Pro Bowler and a two-time All-Pro. Was also a member of the of the 1990s All-Decade Team. Leroy Butler has a not not a not a marginal advantage. A significant statistical advantage in basically every important metric uh, when it comes to playing that position. He played more games. He had uh, more ints by a significant amount, thirty-eight to twenty-four. He had more forced fumbles. He had way more sacks. He had he had four times as many sacks as Atwater did. He had over a hundred more tackles than he did. He had double the All Pro nominations, and they have the same amount of Super Bowl rings. To, to to keep Leroy Butler out of the Hall of Fame and make him go another round while you put Atwater in, to be quite... I mean, it's bullshit. And I, I hate... I almost didn't even want to do the comparison because when you do these comparisons, it's almost like you have to shit on one guy to make your point for the other. But Steve Atwater belongs in the Hall, too. He had an unreal career. But it's just... It's disappointing that... Uh, a guy like Leroy Butler has to has to be kept out and is kept waiting because he might not have the the, the name value or the brand value or some of these other guys. And, like, Leroy Butler played for one of the more, more storied franchises in the league in the Green Bay Packers and played on an iconic team with Brett Favre. So it's kind of baffling how some of these guys don't get in. And, like, Richard Seymour, again, like, one of the more iconic players in the NFL, like, with... with the the Patriots all those years at the start of their dynasty, and Reggie Wayne, of course, in Indianapolis on those iconic Peyton teams. So uh, a bummer that guys have to wait, but it is the Hall of Fame. It's supposed to be hard, and uh, I hope that these guys get in next year. Final segment of the day. I want to give you, as we're starting a new decade here, the 2019 season is over. The Chiefs close out the decade as Super Bowl champions. And 2020, the 2020 season will start a new decade. So I thought back because this is really the first decade. I'm 25 years old. I was 15 at the start of the decade. So this is the first decade where I really remember, for the most part, all 10 years of the NFL. And so I thought it would be kind of a fun exercise to put together my all-decade, my personal all-decade team. And I picked 11 players on offense and 11 players on defense. I picked five DBs. Because that is kind of how the game is played today. I picked two edge guys, two defensive interior guys, two linebackers, and then five DBs uh, for the wide receivers. I think I picked yeah, I picked three wide receivers, a tight end, and then uh, five linemen, a running back, and a quarterback. So without a due, here is my all-decade team, and I would love for you guys to reach out to me on on Twitter in my DMs, hit the voicemail line if, if you have. Uh, some grievances, I would love to hear your all-decade nominations and why you think that they should be in my list if I didn't include them already. So Tom Brady is obviously my Super Bowl or or my all-decade team QB. When you talk about the Super Bowls, when you talk about the dynasty and uh, what he's meant to the Patriots franchise, he's on my all-decade team. Just real quick, running through his stats since 2010 to 2019, he went to 9 of a possible 10 Pro Bowls he was an all-pro two times. He had six 30-plus touchdown seasons, and in five seasons, he had a QBR of 100-plus. Uh, T- Tom Brady uh, was outstanding. And Oh, I said QBR. I, th- I meant pass rating. Pass rating. QBR, I, th- I don't think you can go over 100. But uh, Tom Brady was just outstanding. You know, there were some other guys, like Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers were the only other ones I think you could really consider and while Aaron Rodgers has been a statistical anomaly for a large part of his career, I think that Tom's excellence and commitment to to be excellent and the success he's had in the Super Bowl rings can't be discounted. And so Tom Brady is my is my all decade QB. My all decade running back kind of surprised me because as I was going through the statistics, uh, getting ready for this and making my team, I did not think this guy was gonna gonna be gonna be my pick. But I picked Lashawn McCoy. And the reason I picked LaShawn McCoy is because statistically, he's just way better over the course of this 10 years than anybody else. There have been guys that have had higher peaks. There have been guys that have had, had maybe higher heights for a shorter amount of time. But LaShawn McCoy is, it has a little bit of luck involved because his career arc kind of spans perfectly with a decade. But LaShawn McCoy in this decade has more of, of these categories or equal than any other running, any of his peers. He made six Pro Bowls in this past decade, was an all pro two times. In six different seasons he rushed for a hundred for for a thousand yards. And in five seasons he had fifty plus catches. If you think about the greatness he had, uh, with the Eagles and then the Bills, and now he's been he was a he was a pretty big part of that Chiefs team for about a month or two. He's on the downslide now and he's not the player he once was, but LaShawn McCoy was an outstanding back and certainly deserves recognition. He's my all-decade all, all running back. With the wide receivers, we have three of them. These were fairly easy for me, at least the first two. Julio Jones has made seven Pro Bowls, two All-Pro teams this year. He has had seven 1,000-yard-plus campaigns in 10 tries, which is just absolutely insane when you factor in... Uh, some of the ups and downs he's gone through as an uh, Atlanta Falcon. The other guy on here, Antonio Brown, I mean, I know that in the news, I mean, he's an absolute clown car, but uh, and his name has, has totally, totally taken a hit. And for good reason. Like, I, I can't stand the guy now. But he used to be one of my favorite players when he was going, and it was because he was just clearly the best wide receiver in the NFL. I mean, up until... Literally, his time with the Steelers ended. He was unquestionably uh, the best receiver in the NFL by a long shot. I mean, Julio wasn't even really that close to him. And I'll read you off some of his stats. He also made seven Pro Bowls in the decade, was a four-time All-Pro. He was an All-Pro for almost half the decade as a late-round pick out of Central Michigan. He had seven 1,000-yard-plus campaigns, like Julio Jones, Four of those seven 1,000-yard-plus receiving campaigns were 1,400 yards or more. He was absolutely insane for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and his usage in that offense was just crazy. And it'll be something that we look on, look back on when his career's over, and it looks like it might already be over. But after the dust settles and we look at those Le'Veon Bell, Pittsburgh, uh, the Killer B teams with Roethlisberger, Bell, and Brown— and even Bryant for a year or two, Martavis Bryant, you're going to look back at some of those stats, and Antonio Brown, and absolutely shudder at the production, the just the sheer production. And say what you want about him, He, he guy's, guy's a worker, and his work ethic got him to where he was at at that point, and he, he earned all of those statistics that he racked up. My third wide receiver, you, you may have a little debate with me, I, I researched several different guys but I'm going to have to go with A.J. Green. And A.J. Green's been one of my favorite players, really for no reason. I just, I love watching him play. I love everything about him as a player. I have really no ties to him. He never played for a favorite team of mine or a favorite school of mine. But I just always respected uh, his game. A.J. Green made seven Pro Bowls out of the University of Georgia. Played for the Bengals, which has been one of the worst franchises uh, in in the NFL, probably since the turn of the millennium, they did have a couple of really good stretches, and he was a big part of that. He and Andy Dalton and Tyler Eifert and uh, who was the running back? They had Jeremy Hill and Giovanni Bernard, and they were they had they had a good defense too. They had some really good good teams. They were never able to get it done in the postseason at all. But AJ Green had seven Pro Bowls. He had three 10-plus touchdown seasons, and he had six uh, different seasons with a 1,000 yards or more. Uh, at the tight end position, I had Robert Gronkowski. Uh, Rob Gronkowski had four 1,000-yard-plus uh, campaigns. He had five Pro Bowls, five All-Pros, and five 10-plus touchdown catch seasons, Um there was an argument to be made for maybe a guy like Travis Kelsey, but I think that we're now getting to the to the part where the positions that I'm about to start naming off, it's tough to make an argument purely based on statistics. When you talk about Gronk, he did it all. He was a mismatch nightmare, and even on the nights where he wasn't producing as a receiver, he was blocking in the run game, and he was taking two defenders to free up guys like Edelman and Wes Welker at the time and their, their perimeter threats to get open for Tom. He was just such a complete tight end, and in my opinion, the best tight end probably in the history of the NFL. And I, I know guys like Tony Gonzalez and guys in the past have have really good resumes too and maybe better brand value, But uh, but Gronk, I think, when we look back on his career in 10 years, at just how dominant he was. I mean, like there was there ever a, a tight end as dominant as Rob Gronkowski was during his tenure that was obviously cut short because of the injuries and the bumps and bruises that you take being that big and having guys play that physical to try and stop you? But uh, he just absolutely babied people for his entire career until he hung it up. Gronk was an absolute menace on the football field. My offensive line is as follows. I took two tackles, two guards, and a center. I'm going to go with Joe Thomas from the Cleveland Browns. Uh, his commitment to excellence in the game is is unrivaled. I'm going to go with Tyron Smith, who's still going for the Cowboys. I have two Cowboys on this list because my, one of my guards is Zach Martin. My other guard is Marshall Yonda uh, with the Ravens. Looks like his career's coming to an end, uh, and what a way to go out for him. With uh, I know they didn't win the Super Bowl and were one and done in the playoffs, but man that ride in the regular season was one of the most impressive uh rushing team rushing performances i the likes of which i don't think we've seen in the nfl in a long time i think maybe the the 15 and 1 carolina panthers with cam newton could have could have maybe they they might have a word but uh the performance in the in the ravens run game this year has been outstanding as much credit as we give lamar jackson and uh the offensive coordinator there uh his name is Greg Roman his name escaped me there for a second uh it's uh, the offensive line deserves a lot of credit as well and none was better on that mar- offensive line than Marshall Yonda. my center is Jason Kelsey you could uh, i think gone a number of different routes with this but i just uh took Jason Kelsey for uh his consistency in the league playing center uh for for a really good offensive line um, now we move to the defense uh, on the edge. My two edge rushers are J.J. Watt and Von Miller. Uh, the only other guy I really considered here was Khalil Mack, but uh, it was really easy to select J.J. Watt. Similar to Gronk, like I know he's not the same player anymore, but at his peak, was there anybody as unblockable as J.J. Watt out of the University of Wisconsin? I, I don't think so. And Von Miller's speed rush—I know that he didn't hold up against the run as well in his early years out Texas a but. He's become such a good leader for the Broncos, and J.J. Watt for the Texans, too. These guys were just at the top of their game in this decade, and the sack numbers bared out. They are just incredible. On the defensive interior, I went with uh, Ndamukong Suh. I think that is like, pretty inarguable. And then the other one I went with was Fletcher Cox from the Eagles. I considered Geno Atkins from the Bengals, but ultimately I went with Fletcher Cox, Uh yeah, I mean, if you if you said Geno Atkins, I wouldn't argue with you because his ability to rush from the inside is, I mean, maybe as good as we've ever seen. But Fletcher Cox, I just thought, was a more complete player, especially later on in this decade, has really been a disruptor for the Eagles' defense that that won the Super Bowl. So I had to give it to Fletcher. Uh, at the linebacking core, uh, I picked Luke Keekley and Bobby Wagner. Luke Keekley calling it quits. I mean, real sad to see him... Retire early on. I mean, I mean, happy for him, but I mean, just for the league and as a guy that loves watching football, I will miss watching him suit up and play because the relentlessness with which Luke Keekley played the game was very commendable. And he played through so many injuries. One of the toughest guys and, and one of the greatest guys too. I mean, just the nicest guy off the field that you could meet, but a complete and total badass. Between the white lines. And Bobby Wagner, I think, has changed the NFL and how we evaluate the position. With his sideline-to-sideline size, speed, and athleticism, they, they don't make him like Bobby Wagner, but everybody is trying to get themselves one. He is, I think, the direct reason why... The old run stuffers, like the guys like Blake Martinez on the Packers are going out of style. Though Those uh, big burly run stuffers that would just come up and pop you are disappearing from the league. And it's because of guys like Bobby Wagner that are able to be just as explosive in the run game and chase you down on a sweep. They can plug a hole, shed a guard block, take out a puller, and then drop back and just completely take away a back or a tight end in coverage. I mean... Uh, Bobby Wagner was really the first to do that and was the captain of a of that Legion of Boom defense. I know the secondary gets a lot of praise, but, but Bobby Wagner in the front seven was as good as anybody. You move on to the back end, and here are my five defensive backs. Richard Sherman, I think, has got to be number one. Most dominant corner of this decade, and it's really not all that close. When you take a look at what, what he's been able to do... Really with, I mean, not it's not like he's one of the most physically gifted guys in the world. He's a bigger corner, a more physical guy, and was not a, a physically average player by any means, especially uh, in his days with the Seahawks. Now he's a little bit more of a marginal athlete, but Richard Sherman was a big physical, tough corner uh, in his days with the Seahawks, and guys just weren't putting up numbers like him, and so... Uh, he was an easy choice. Patrick Peterson was my other choice at the other corner spot, and I think that he gets a little, little uh, ignored because he plays out in the desert, and they haven't had very many good teams out there, but Patrick Peterson at LSU has uh, made a couple of All-Pros, I believe, and was nominated once as a returner. Also, uh, real versatile guy, a man-to-man corner. That again, his better, his best years are probably behind him at this point. But uh, P two, uh, that was his nickname, and he he is he's he's a stud man, and he's lived up to the billing. And off the field, he's a he's a leader and a great guy. And the safeties for me are the two guys from the Legion of Boom. I mean, I'm sorry. I got to put Cam Chancellor on there. I know his numbers aren't as good as maybe some other guys. Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas was the easy choice because of his ability to run, hit, and cover. He could do it all, play in the run game. I mean, he still does it all if he's healthy. He can play in the run game. He can make tackles. He can just blast you if you come over the middle of the field. And he has the speed to run with you. He is the complete package as a free safety and as a strong safety, it just, just doesn't get any better than Cam Chancellor. Now, I like hitting. I like physicality. And Cam Chancellor's game wasn't as much coverage. So to be on an all-decade team, maybe it may, mean you could find a guy that did it all a little bit better than Cam did. But Cam Chancellor struck fear into the heart of his opponents, And he was still really good. He's a physical freak. And now he has had to retire because of the way he played. But out of Virginia Tech, man, Cam Chancellor was it. He absolutely bodied people for his entire time in the NFL. The reason they were called the Legion of Boom was because of Cam Chancellor. It was not because of Richard Sherman or Earl Thomas or Brandon Browner on the other side or the guys in the front seven, maybe more the guys in the front seven than the rest of the secondary, but it was because of, if, if any one person, Cam Chancellor. Guy has a badass name, Chancellor, and he just absolutely laid guys out. I mean... The relentlessness with which he played was so sweet. He was one of my favorite players, so maybe I'm a little biased, but I love Cam Chancellor. The one I struggled with putting over him, and he's going to be an honorable mention here, was Eric Weddle, who I think you could have made a case for being on over Cam Chancellor with some of his stats that he racked up. But man, I, I just have to give it to Cam, like the, the athleticism and just the the physical freak that he was as a safety. It, it was it just must have been completely terrifying to play against, to line up against him. Uh, My DB, my fifth DB is going to be Darrell Rivas. He's the final player on this list. Uh, Really was only an elite corner for about half this decade, but for that half decade, he was the best. I mean, until Richard Sherman kind of took that mantle from him, he was the unquestioned great one. And I think... I think, in my opinion, even over Dion, was the best man-to-man corner we've ever seen in the history of pro football. I mean, when you, Rivas Island, it, that's all you really have to say. And some of that was done in the decade prior to the 2010s. But even with the Patriots, all those great years he had in Belichick's defense before going back to the Jets and then kind of, that was the beginning of the end for him. Uh, he got, he was just getting roasted left and right over there. But uh, the years he had with the Patriots, I think, get forgotten about, and he was really good. I think he made three All-Pro teams, either first or second team All-Pro. So uh, Darrell Revis is, is my fifth DB, and that's going to do it. Again, let me know what your thoughts are. Uh, you're always welcome to DM me. Tweet me on Twitter. Tell me how big of an idiot I am. Call into the text, call into the line on uh, the Brews on the Balcony show, and then we, he, they can send it to me, and we'll read it over here on Blitz on the Balcony. But uh, that'll do it for me here. For uh, the rest of our team, I'm Zach Sook. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day, and we'll see you next week.